Hey everyone, welcome back to FYI with ARK Invest. It's me, Tasha Keeney, ARK Analyst, and I'm here with Sebastian Bankert, our Director of Marketing. Hey Tasha, how's it going? Good. Well, it's been a crazy year, hasn't it? Yeah, I'm kind of glad that it's over. I'm currently in Germany, actually, hoping to enjoy some time with family. And yeah, it's time that this year is coming to an end. I know, I feel the same way coming to you from my sister's bedroom here in New York City in a, in a small apartment. It's getting smaller by the day, but we're surviving. But you know, there's been a lot of great things that have happened this year. We've interviewed so many interesting guests on our podcast. We've published a lot of episodes. We've gotten up to 38 episodes this year in 2020. And we've had a lot of honorable guests, haven't we, Sebastian? Yeah, some of the highlights, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, I know he joined one of our brainstorming sessions and I at first wouldn't believe who I saw, Robin and Inception and all the movies like you've probably seen in him. And I did not know that he was involved in a very interesting startup. So we interviewed him on that. Yeah, a little starstruck, even at ARC. It was super exciting to have him. He's, you know, he's a smart guy. He has a lot to say about innovation. So yeah, he was, he was a super interesting guest. We also had Steve Blank, Gary Vaynerchuk. I got to interview Gary with Nick. Super fun. He's like the perfect podcast guest. He's so professional about it. He has great little tidbits to walk away from. We had Dan Kimberling when it comes to everything related to fintech. And then we had a number of episodes actually relating to healthcare and the COVID-19 pandemic, especially during the month of April into May. A lot of our episodes were related to the global pandemic, to COVID-19 and the crisis we went through and we're still in, but really how technology helped us to kind of overcome it how technology accelerated, how fintech, automation, robotics, vaccine, DNA sequencing, all these technologies, how they impacted the market, companies, and what to look out for. I love that. So it's, it's COVID-related, but it's, it's not just healthcare. It's, it's all of our topics and sort of how they've fared, all of our technologies and how they've fared through these times. So yeah, go back. Um, if you haven't listened to our podcast in April and May, that's a great sort of coverage period for the pandemic and, and everything that ARC does that's uh, sort of related to it. And then, Sebastian, we had, where were our listeners this year? And I know we had a lot in the U.S., but we also got some sort of around the world. Yeah, we looked at the statistics, and I'm actually was pleasantly surprised to see that roughly 60% is North America, so U.S. and Canada. But then 40% is really global, including people from the U.K., Germany, Sweden. So, Taksimike to Varalisana Posveria. I brushed up on my Swedish during COVID, during uh, the quarantine times. <laughs> Singapore, China, Australia. So yeah, it's it's very interesting to see that we have a global audience because innovation is something that will impact all of us and is global. Yeah, I like that. You know, we, we get the question a lot. I think sometimes people think we're we're US focused, but you know, the technologies that we cover and um, and the companies and sort of all of our areas of research are are global. So, you know, it's great to see that listener base and I hope it grows. ARC should be a global company in, in its nature. So yeah, look, look forward to that next year. So our top podcasts for this year, you know, the first we we have Emerging Themes in Fintech with Dan Kimperling. That's episode 78. Uh, one of the most popular episodes that actually just aired, The History of Big Data and the Future of Analytics with Muji. That's 85. And then the last one, which I personally love, Battery Supply Chain for Electric Vehicles with Simon Moores and Vivas Kumar. That's 72. You know, that one's really interesting because it sort of explains some of the backbones of the battery industry, which is, of course, so important for a lot of the technologies that Sam and I cover in the auto industry. The question about how we can support the growing demand for batteries is really a question that we're getting a lot when it comes to electric vehicles. 
And so understanding where the resources are coming from, how we can support the supply chain of batteries for electric vehicles is something critical. If you're an investor in this area, you kind of want to understand that and understand where the shortages are or if there are shortages and what it means for the timeline of electric adoption. Um, So one of my favorite episodes as well. Yeah. And then in this summary, we will kick off with this battery supply chain episode and then followed by an episode that you interviewed, episode 82, the podcast with Gary, as you have mentioned followed by Joseph Gordon-Levitt about Hit Record, how we can be creative together, also very relevant during the quarantine times when everyone was stuck inside. So if you want to be creative, check out Hit Record. And then lastly, an episode with Lake Scholl, the CEO of Boom Supersonic. Everyone tune in. We're going to play a little summary. You know, I'd say for next year, uh, definitely let us know any any interesting guests that you want us to have on. You know, I personally, I want more women on the podcast. So send me some ideas for innovative women out there. I know I have a lot on my own. We plan to interview Kathy, our innovator in chief. So look out for that. But otherwise, yes, stay tuned for the summary and everyone have a safe and, and happy holidays. It's been such a wild year, but thanks for sticking with us. Thanks for listening and see you next year. Yeah. Happy holidays to everyone. Thank you, Tasha. Big Ideas 2021 coming out in January, our annual report, as well as we have a treat for everyone who follows art closely and is a big fan of what we're doing. There's going to be a surprise coming in January first week. uh, So stay on the lookout for that. And until then, happy holidays and have a great New Year's Eve. ARK Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by ARK. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by ARK or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by ARK to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of ARK Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Today, we're joined by uh, two special guests. We have Simon Moores, who's the Managing Director at Benchmark Mineral Intelligence, and Vivas Kumar, who's a principal at Benchmark and is also currently enrolled at Stanford Business School. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Sam. And today, we're going to be discussing electric vehicles, which we discuss quite often, but a piece that often gets left out of the discussion is the supply chain. We know that the battery is the most important piece of the vehicle from a cost perspective. And because of that, equally important is where you're getting all of the resources for that. So do you want to just talk about Benchmark Mineral Intelligence a little bit and give some context for this whole discussion? Yeah. So Benchmark was founded six years ago, in our sixth year now. Um, to specifically collect data, price data and and other market-sensitive data on the lithium-ion battery supply chain. So this means anywhere starting with the lithium or cobalt mine all the way through to the cathode and anode stages of the supply chain and then eventually ending at the battery cell. So our goal really was to build up data where data didn't exist at the time and we created that through a series of methodologies, building team out so we can travel around the world to meet all the key actors in, in the space. And it's become really powerful. It's, it's not just being used by mining companies, electric vehicle makers, battery makers, but it's also now being used by governments. Um, a special moment for us was myself and Vivas were at the White House on the, uh, the end of last year to discuss this. So it's, it's been a fun ride and it doesn't seem to be stopping even, even during the coronavirus. I think that's super true. Even just this morning, uh, China 
decided that they would extend subsidies for two years for electric vehicles. And so I think we can just kick things off. I think, you know, China and the U.S., both pretty aggressive with electric vehicles, but not every single electric vehicle is the same. And I heard a wonderful talk from Vivas, if you want to dive into this, what's the difference between some of these battery packs? Not all batteries are created the same, is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. And I think what we find is that your average consumer in the USA or in Europe is more demanding in terms of range, in terms of where they can recharge, how quickly they can recharge. And that translates directly into the quality of the battery cells that are used for the electric vehicle, which then translates into the quality of the battery materials that are used. So, for example, the prevailing cell chemistries in electric vehicles in the USA and Europe are things like NCA or NCM. So that's nickel, cobalt, aluminum, or nickel, cobalt, manganese. And there are different proportions around which these materials are used. But if you go to China, there's a broader mix of what the cathode chemistries can be. And LFP, so lithium iron phosphate, is much more common as a cathode chemistry. And that's just reflective of the fact that LFP is a cheaper material, traditionally a cheaper material than NCA or NCM. It thus far does not have the performance characteristics of an NCA or an NCM, although those who are working on the next generation of LFP will argue that next generation will catch up. But the performance characteristics of LFP are well suited to that of the Chinese consumer. Going forward, we're going to see more and more of this kind of differentiation by application, this kind of differentiation by geography. And, you know, you mentioned my, my talk at Stanford, which is free and available for anybody to look up on YouTube. One of the points that I made on that talk was that 10 years from now, what we're going to see is individual companies. So let's take your Tesla or let's take your BMW. They're going to be differentiating chemistries even internally based on application and based on geography. We've already seen the first step of this, where Tesla earlier this year publicly announced that they were going to be working on an LFP battery pack that is specific to their China Model 3s. And this was, a, this was seen as a big departure from their strategy of using NCA cells mostly for their vehicles worldwide. But in the future, you know, we're going to see that go even one level deeper, which is even in the USA, for example, I as a driver have a certain profile in terms of the number of miles I drive per day and the fact that I have to mostly charge at Tesla superchargers and at charge points versus there are others who drive three or four miles per day and they charge once every 15 days at their home charger. And there will be differentiation even between the chemistries in both of our cars here in the USA. I think that's a great point. I mean, especially just on the form factor diversification. Right now, you've got different markets and different use cases. But I think, you know, going forward, as everything really goes electric, you're going to have those micromobility options, potentially neighborhood electric vehicles that aren't even designed for the highway. And it makes sense that they would have a different battery chemistry so that they could be price competitive and appealing. So then, I guess we'll, we'll dive to the NCM because that's the one that's been getting a lot of hype recently, especially cobalt's been on everyone's mind, higher nickel content for more energy density. Can you walk us just through those elements where they're mined broadly and kind of what the supply chain looks like for each of them? Yeah, so cobalt is the highest profile. It doesn't seem to be going away, even though comparatively compared to lithium and nickel and graphite anode in the battery, there's hardly any cobalt used. Uh, it is a very important element because it's, it adds a, a stabilizing factor 
to the chemistry and therefore it's important and we believe uh, at Benchmark that cobalt will always be needed in a lithium-ion battery for the foreseeable future, it's just in lower quantities. So cobalt's critically important in electric vehicles. The other thing at Benchmark we always say is that there won't be an electric vehicle industry without DRC Congo cobalt. Over 65% of cobalt comes from the DRC, it's just the way it's geologically distributed around the world. You can't get away from that. All the deposits outside of DRC are much smaller. The electric vehicle industry needs volume. So that's a challenge in itself to, to help that industry in the DRC grow sustainably, more transparently. That helps the local communities rather than punishes them for, for maybe trying to build sources elsewhere, although you're probably going to need a bit, a bit of both. So cobalt's got the, will always have those issues because you're not going to get the volume outside of of, of the DRC. Lithium is the other big one that we get a lot of questions on and lithium is mined in South America from brine operations and it's extracted as a hard rock in traditional mining operations in Australia but then that gets shipped to China and converted into chemicals. So when you start piecing together lithium you kind of realize how inefficient that industry is in a sense as well because the mines are spread so far around the world and the, the chemical plants the majority is, is processed within China into in chemicals. So over half actually lithium chemicals are, are made within China, even though no mining, hardly any mining takes place there. So with lithium and cobalt alone, you've got very dispersed kind of supply chains all kind of flowing into China and then really back out of China into the US. And I know there's something Vivas has, has worked a lot on supply chain maps and how the industry kind of is evolving, but I don't know what your thoughts are, Vivas. Yeah, I think if you go back to the initial question that Sam asked, which was about like the very beginning of this podcast where Sam asked about USA versus China, it's what China as a country and companies that are involved in China have done very effectively is centralizing and localizing the supply chain within the country. So Simon mentioned that about 50% of the lithium chemicals are made in China, but the numbers are pretty similar for cobalt chemicals and for nickel chemicals. They're even higher, actually, for some of the other sort of more esoteric battery chemicals, specialty chemicals that are used in battery manufacturing. If you look at battery cell capacity, what Benchmark is tracking is that approximately two-thirds of global battery cell capacity today is in China. And even 10 years from now in 2029, even though we're going to be growing to over two terawatt hours of battery capacity, two-thirds of that will still be geographically within China. So, I mean, the impetus for this has just been that the electric vehicle market is growing exponentially fast. And China has done an extremely effective job Companies involved in China have done an extremely effective job of centralizing the supply chain so that more of that value capture can happen within their borders. And this is some of the work that Simon and I have been doing. You know, Simon is based in London. I'm based here in the U.S. And with European governments, with North American governments, just having the conversation that a robust electric vehicle industry, a robust lithium-ion battery industry is not just about the automotive OEM. It's about bringing the entire supply chain on board. Because any bottleneck or any sort of geographic, geopolitical issues that pop up in the supply chain will compromise the end goal of getting millions of electric vehicles on the road to get clean air worldwide. Wow, I think that's a, a great point. And then, I mean, just to contextualize it, right, we're talking about two terawatt hours of capacity. Where are we today relative to that? Yeah, so right now we're at about 450 gigawatt hours of global capacity of global lithium-ion battery capacity. Now, rewind back five years to 2015, we're at 60 
a gigawatt hour capacity. So the point we try and make is that the, the battery industry has grown five times, of between four and five times in, in the last five years in terms of capacity and the supply as well. On Vivas's number, by 2030, we've just up, literally today, we've just updated our gigawatt hours number for 2030, and we're at 2,481 gigawatt hours of battery capacity in the pipeline. So this means 130 of these battery mega factories are being built over the next 10 years, really over the next sort of five years they're being established, and they're being expanded throughout the, the time horizon out to 2030. 2.4 terawatt hours. 70% of that's in China, and 9% of that is in the USA, and 17% of that is in Europe. So that's your latest data. I don't think there's a single person listening right now that is confused that OTT and streaming is 100% doing to cable and network what cable and internet did to network, what cable did to network, what network did to radio. This is like, I mean, every single person in your and my organization and listening to this right now would probably bet the farm, the whole farm, their kids' health on a decade from today, things look a lot more like Disney Plus and, and Netflix and Hulu than they look like ABC or CBS or CNN. And so I think the winners are the ones that are in a financial stable position to be able to invest in streaming and take all that advertising dollars that are inevitably going to come behind it. And the losers are the ones that are romantic or financially stuck in milking what they have. I mean, it's very common sense, Fortune 500 publicly traded company logic versus reality of the speed of innovation that's happening with the internet. Meaning, if you're the CEO of Procter & Gamble and or of a a large media conglomerate out there, Epic, you know, or something of that nature where you know you're not going to be in this seat in nine months or 18 months because you've decided for your family and yourself and you're striking all your stock options within 24 or 36 months after that day. And what you're doing is you're holding your breath and making no investments so that you can maximize your personal economics 41 months from now. But if you own the family business of Viacom, you'd never do that because you know exactly the consumer has told you what's already happening. So I think the winners are the ones who can or are empowered by being historically correct, you know, that look at themselves as I'm going to be in this position for six years. So let me do this now. Ones that feel that they know how to manage the street to take the punch in the gut on the upfront capital they're going to have to deploy. Quibi's going to scare the shit out of people, right? Just because you have the right, just because you have the macro strategy of streaming is real. That's like me telling everybody who's listening to become an NBA basketball player because it's going to be a billion dollar contract in the future, you have to be good enough to be an NBA basketball player. So it's not just deciding to do Peacock. How well is NBC going to execute Peacock? It's not just saying that the fragmentation of OTT is upon us and the IP within it. Like tomorrow, the Kardashian family can start K and probably do quite well, but they'll have to execute as well as Kylie's beauty brand, not as well as a million other things we've seen fail, even though the ingredients are there they didn't have the cook to cook it yeah so gary there seems to be two winners in this past year you have the streaming the ott video but then also you have social media companies and they've really come on in terms of digital ad spend so when you look at smaller companies they're going to obviously be more 
aligned with social media. It's just cheaper. You're not going to have a small company being able to go to these streaming services and advertise. Uh, so where do you- I don't, you know what's funny though, Nick? Like, you know, that's yeah. actually what excites me the most, brother. If OTT is biddable, you're going to find small businesses running commercials on friends. That's a good point. Yeah. Right. And like, to me, like the great luxury of my career at being 44, being young is I've already had real significant chapters in very small SMB family liquor store business that I grew quite a bit a very big chapter in Silicon Valley where I did a lot of smart investing. And then now really deep in Fortune 500 consumer land and B2B land. It's going to be pretty cool. Like I think of Gary at 22, knowing that Hulu ads are underpriced, running commercials for a one-store liquor store against the wonder years. That's like mm-hmm. the coolest shit ever, right? So, yeah. but to your point, I think what you're going to see is Look, I couldn't be more uncomfortably bullish on OTT and social over network and traditional. Like, I think the delta is extreme. I think common sense is the great missing anecdote of the business world. Yeah. And I think reporting and short-term financial arbitrage is why. And I see it everywhere. But yeah, I think those two platforms are going to continue to be huge winners. And I would tell you that this year, them winning is not an enigma because of the political year or because of COVID. This is the preview, not the anomaly. Right. And so if you look at one of these small businesses that want to spend on streaming, OTT, or social, where are you directing those dollars today? Where's the best bang for your buck in terms of platform spend? If you're a tiny, tiny business, it's LinkedIn and TikTok because they are organic reach too. Mm -hmm. So organic is something we don't talk a lot about but it's absolutely the place where everybody fails. Fortune 50 companies deciding social media stinks because they're running an organic playbook on platforms that don't have organic reach and they haven't even tested media properly or they spend media on it like they're running television. Huge elephant in the room for everybody who's listening right now, why people don't think social is ROI positive. Comma, tiny, tiny companies, Facebook. It has scale targetability, and just ungodly proven capabilities of driving business results. Right. And so so Facebook seems to be far and ahead of other competitors and on the social landscape, but who but in the quick, last- Just let me give yeah. you some interesting, Snap doing incredibly well for app yeah. download. Snap doing incredibly well for app. So the answer is very, very unique. If you're a t-shirt company, TikTok ads are remarkable. The big thing that nobody realizes is the number one place to advertise is 60 to 90 year olds on Facebook. Number one, if you have a business that wants to sell to 60 to 90 year olds, Facebook dismantles Fox News television, dismantles it. Hmm. But yet nobody talks about that. I mean, I would, I think Facebook is one of the, you know, I'm a humongous advocate of its ad product, but I think it's one of the worst comms companies in the world. And forget about the whole like privacy thing and Zucks and all that, all the stuff that people get to of like hating it. I'm going super narrow. It has the killer product in the world if you're trying to sell to 55 to 90 year olds and every media planner in America buys television because they're incentivized to because Facebook's harder to spend money on, meaning you need skills, you have to do fragmentation, you need a lot of creative iteration. But Facebook's a monster if you're selling retirement homes, caskets, products that sell to 55 to 90 year olds. Obviously, TikTok is a monster if you're selling to 15 to 25. Instagram and YouTube own the middle. Snapchat, if you're doing app downloads, is really attractive. LinkedIn is a monster B2B, but nobody wants to pay the $25 CPMs because everybody plays in media math, not in business math. Twitter's great for qualitative insight. 
to hypothesis around creative. So I use Twitter a lot as a test bed for creative to see consumers' actual opinions of. This is real skill. And people continue to think of social media as an afterthought. But Fortune 500, Madison Avenue, Mad Men, and women are starting to kind of wake up. But I still think we're 36 months away from where Coca-Cola is spending 55% of its ad budget on Facebook Inc. And they will. And you think that's going to come mostly from that linear TV ad spend? Like that seems to I be do. the biggest bucket. I that's do. Available, yeah, right? I, I think upfront, billion or yeah. so. That seventy billion is such garbage. Yeah, like like it is destroying the biggest brands in the world. Now, Super Bowl is the best deal in advertising. Every brand listening right now, or everybody who's got a board seat on a consumer brand, you should yell at the top of the mountains once you cross your T's and I's on my hyperbole here to do Super Bowl because the actual consumption of the ad for what you pay is remarkably cheap. Right. After you go there, TV couldn't be a worse bet. Now every report shows it's okay because Nielsen's and Miller Brown and all these things, it's an inside game. All the MMAs internally have been built around it. Wait till the activist investors realize how much money is being wasted on marketing. All these activist investors have focused on like flights and printing on both sides of the paper. Wait till 3G wakes up and realizes most of their marketing goes in the garbage when they run a TV. And as you look over this past year, and you said, as we often find with innovation, things have accelerated during this difficult time. How great do you think that impact has been? You said you think like this is three years out. I'll I'll tell you why it's been so big, Tasha. It's because decision makers became practitioners during this time. CMOs sit in boardrooms and have no idea what's actually going on. There's no cans on keyboards. People don't actually know, right? And agencies are all mainly owned by holding companies who are publicly traded, who are going to keep pushing television propaganda into their clients because they make more margin selling TV than they do on Facebook. They're not incentivized. Their Omnicom's interests aren't aligned with Ford's. I have, by the way, on the record, I have no idea if that holding company works with that brand. But, you know, so the thing that I've noticed in these nine months is getting a lot of emails and LinkedIn messages from leaders with things that basically said, I used to think you were a snake oil salesman, but now that I've had time to actually look, holy crap, how can I get more educated on this? Or, hey, can we talk? So I think more than anything, it's not even consumer behavior acceleration. It's actually decision makers education of that I think has serendipitously happened during this era. Do you think this change is permanent? Yes. Yeah. If we're talking about what we're talking about, which yeah, I think in the is macro, yeah, macro yeah. business, how does the ecosystem work with media brands opportunities? Yeah, I think it's permanent because I think the thing that has always worked for me is never betting against the reality of the human being. Like nobody's going back. Yeah. There is no time machines. We're not going to read print at scale. Only hipsters out of ironic behavior will. 2029 Queens might read the newspaper as a niche funny thing because they're anti-establishment. There will be a wave of, and we've seen it already, of anti-digital propaganda. So you will see some interesting sub-behaviors occur, but the sheer scale of actual consumption on these 15 platforms, YouTube, Facebook, Snapchat, Spotify on audio, things of that nature, the cat's out of the bag. I'm flabbergasted other than being educated and this is where wall street sometimes gets caught other than the fact that i'm educated because i'm in it every day had i not known that it was in agencies vested interest to not 
allow the advancement of these products, which are much more complicated to run planning, execution, creative media. Had I not been educated on this, I wouldn't be able to understand why Coca-Cola and BMW and Procter and Unilever do what they're doing. I wouldn't understand. Nothing in my brain would be able to put the pieces together because I do know, I understand that it's not in mindshare, the agency that does media for Unilever's interest to do a contemporary execution. Now I'm like, oh, I understand. And that is the great detriment of the iconic brands in the world, which is why you're seeing so much growth on the ankle biter brands on DTC because they're picking up market share at scale on the back of overvaluations because there's so much money being printed. And yes, their economics aren't true, but the problem is the Unilevers, the Proctors, they go out and M&A these brands and pay enormous amounts of money. Often that organ can't fit the body and it becomes a failed M&A instead of just doing what they should be doing, which is completely changing their media and creative strategies. Gary, I want to talk a bit about the other side of this, and that's the content and the content creation. You have all this money flowing into the ecosystems, and there are millions of people signing up to be content creators. You talk to someone who's younger, they're saying, I want to be a YouTube content creator. How sustainable is that market? How big can it grow? It follows a power law distribution. You have 10% of the people making 90% of the great content quality. So how big is that market going to be? As long as the internet is the foundational infrastructure of our society. And as long as it doesn't get overregulated, the answer is in perpetuity until it takes all the money out of the ivory towers. And when I think of Hit Record and the premise around the creative development process, I think there is a stark difference between what happens on Hit Record and social media platforms. Can you just expand a little bit on that difference and why Hit Record isn't a social media platform? Because it doesn't feel that way and it's not built to feel that way. Yeah, it's a funny thing. I always ask myself, what exactly does that mean, social media? It's come to me in a, a very particular thing because certain successful business models have made a lot of money doing it, made money through this kind of attention economy and advertising combined with big data and you know machine learning that can track you and <laughs> all that stuff. And that's what social media has come to mean. But a social network really just means lots of people all over the world connecting. And lots of people all over the world connecting doesn't have to mean that they're being funneled into this particular kind of advertising mass surveillance machine. A social network can mean something where people's purpose is to make things together, to be productive, to accomplish something they might not have been able to do on their own. And that's what we're building. And just to give a specific example, like when you open up our app, you don't land on a feed of content, you land on a feed of projects. And each one of those projects is an opportunity for you to get involved with other people. And someone started that project and they're looking for collaborators. And it could be someone who wrote a story and is looking for an illustrator. It could be someone who made a beat and is looking for a baseline. It could be someone who just has an idea and needs lots of different collaborators. It could be someone who just says, hey, I drew an elephant. Let's all draw elephants together. It could be really ambitious or really simple, but it's people who want to be creative together with other people. And that's a very different thing than people who have posted their content, whether it's a video or a snapshot or whatever. And the call to action is like me, follow me. It's very different than let's collaborate. Right. Your call to action is let's collaborate. When I think about analogizing to what exists in the world, people will often jump to Instagram and Facebook as maybe, oh, it's sort of like this. But really the closest analogy is something more like GitHub, 
right? Yeah, GitHub, man. Yeah, we talked about GitHub a lot. The way programmers work is a lot closer to the spirit of what you're trying to get into. Programmers have kind of figured this out a while ago because you need a team of people to create something reasonably complicated like Bitcoin, right? And these are just people around the globe. They all have to work together, but they have to work on a common code base. So there needs to be version control and check-in and online software that makes that happen. GitHub has become big because it lets multiple people work on the same project together. It sounds like HitRecord is doing that, but for creative projects. Absolutely. The open source movement is a big inspiration for how we have always thought of HitRecord. Like years ago, when Jared and I were first kind of conceiving of all this, one of our favorite thought leaders was the lawyer and writer Lawrence Lessig, who wrote a great book called Remix. Remix is all about how online creative culture has fostered this different approach to people building off of each other and collaborating in that way. But if you look earlier in Lawrence Lessig's catalog, he's writing about open source. I forget the title of one of his books, but it's exactly about the open source coding movement, the center of which is GitHub right now, or has been for a long time. And so you're absolutely right. What coders are doing, working together in an online environment, building off of each other, incorporating each other's libraries and functions and various blocks of code into their own project and sharing that creative process together. There's no reason that shouldn't work for art. And I think we've been proving that it does. And, you know, now we're in the midst of figuring out how to make the whole process a lot more user-friendly and efficient and accessible so that it can work at scale. Just to build on what we're talking about, it's funny, Joe and I never considered ourselves tech people necessarily. We didn't want to call ourselves a tech company. Of course, when you connect hundreds of thousands of people around the world to collaborate through technology, you're a tech company. (laughs) But, you know, half of our team now are developers and they're awesome. And what's so cool is that it's a very similar kind of mindset, a developer as somebody who you might more traditionally call an artist. It's this kind of abstract thinking. You kind of have to think in a very abstract way and envision how you want things to be and then translate it into another language. Like developers are literally speaking another language. And I've had conversations with our dev team and I'm realizing like some of the similar conversations as how I would speak, the conversations that I would have with an editor or a writer in talking about abstract ideas and trying to articulate that into a code or visuals or edit. It's very similar kinds of conversations. We actually do speak the same language. So it is funny that it is netting out as, oh, this is like a GitHub because we ultimately do speak the same kind of thinking language. What kind of metaphors from GitHub carry over to creative work, art, music, videos? Like, for example, can people fork repositories or content? Is the default permissions open for other people to use? And how does credit happen? Walk us through some of the finer details. Sure. Well, yeah, you mentioned credit. Attribution is a big thing for us, as is Remix. What gets called fork on GitHub, we tend to call Remix. Remix is just if you take something that someone else has done and you make it your own somehow. And that could be that you take a tiny little fragment and you incorporate it into your larger piece, or you take their larger piece and you just tweak it a bit and make a new version. All the above is possible. But when you're constantly remixing each other, attribution is very, very important. You can't remix someone else's thing without giving them credit. 
that feels wrong. When you do give them credit, it feels so right. It feels great. Like getting remixed is actually, I find an incredibly exhilarating experience as an artist, much more so than any other kind of feedback you can get. You know, you can get a round of applause, you can get a good review, you can do well at the box office, you can get awards, all of these kinds of feedback, you can get likes, you can get comments, all of these kinds of feedback you can get, they only go so far. Whereas when someone remixes you, that means that someone has cared enough about what you did that it inspired them to be creative. And through their creativity, you can really see what they thought. You can really get a sense of how what you put out into the world made an impact on someone else. And sometimes it's really unexpected and fascinating to see what someone else made out of what you did. And anyway, so remix is really crucial, like forking. And then the attribution, that's a big part of how our platform works. Whenever you contribute, we call it contribute, you could say upload a new piece of content. You're always prompted to list your resources. We call them resources, which is basically the things that you have remixed. And so every contribution on our site has a list of resources and remixes. Now, of course, some things don't have as many resources or some things have none and some things haven't been remixed yet, but everything has the potential to have its list of resources and remixes of where it came from and where it's headed. And that forms a family tree of attribution. That's really crucial for a bunch of reasons. One, it's crucial when you're kind of in the midst of a creative process and you're like, looking through a project and you're seeing how you might want to get involved or where it's going, seeing what the resources are, what the remixes are is fascinating and inspiring and illuminating. It's also really important if and when any of the stuff ends up becoming a monetized production, its attribution becomes key because we've paid contributing artists in our community uh, over 3 million bucks over the years for different times that various things in our community have been monetized when we've made a TV show or we've made various branded content partnering with brands like LG or Sony or Samsung or Levi's or we've published books, we've put out records, we've done all kinds of things. And whenever any of those projects make money, we're currently, sorry, I'm shouting out our current partners, Zappos and Ubisoft. Whenever any of those projects make money, it's really important that the community get paid. And so that attribution is necessary in order to make sure that everyone gets fairly paid. I think it's also important when you have all those individual ingredients, elements that make up a larger whole, in terms of community management and community vibes, if certain individuals or a group of individuals isn't liking the direction that a certain project leader is taking with their project, through the use of Remix, they can just make their own thing. They can go another direction completely. And the project leader on project A might think like, oh, wow, I didn't think of it that way. But it allows for an environment where it's an open sandbox. They can create whatever they want. It's not beholden necessarily. Yeah, projects do take leadership. But if you don't like the direction that that project's going, then start your own. You mentioned, you know, you talked about unstructured data. It sounds like based on some of the areas that you were in before a concert, you were dealing with a lot of murkiness um, and things that were a little bit, you know, kind of hidden. So that, you know, bridged with genetics. Obviously, you know, when people look at healthcare, you start to, especially over the past, you know, 10 or 15 years since the cost of sequencing has come down and the adoption of genetic testing ostensibly has, you know, increased. I'm wondering how you bridge those two, right? Because healthcare information, a lot of it was manual. A lot of it was kind of hidden and difficult to assess. So maybe to maybe narrow in on a question, you know, why genetics and why now specifically? 
Well, I think there are a number of ways to approach that problem, but I'd, I'd probably step back and sort of say, well, you know, at a high level, what problem are we trying to solve or what problems are mm -hmm. we trying to solve with genetics, with genetic testing, with personalized medicine? And then you can start to kind of figure out where in that cycle we are towards solutions. So at a, at a very high level, I think we are with genetics and personalized medicine, we're trying to solve some important problems around health. We're trying to find cures to diseases. We're trying to improve the health of our fellow humans. And we're trying to do that in a way that leverages a growing understanding of the world around us. And in the sort of broad swaths of innovation, we're applying technologies, we're applying math, discovery, innovation, biology to try to figure out how we can improve health, how we can improve the quality and also the economics of healthcare. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, my perspective on the moment we're in is we are now sort of coming into an age of personalized medicine. We've been at it for a long time in many ways, but it also takes a long time to build evidence and understanding. And then mm -hmm. once you have evidence and understanding, sort of fundamental research starts to transition into sort of like what's the application. We've seen some amazing applications of genetics, genetics health. But at the same time, when kind of I looked at the market, trying to understand what we would do as concert uh, and where we would make a mark, what emerged is just how, to use your term, how murky it was, how mm -hmm. little infrastructure there really was to go and solve that problem, to do the math. Mm -hmm. So my, my background in running these companies was you need to get access. To, in order to do the math, you need data and you got to have access to it. And in order to have data, you got to have infrastructure that serves up the data in a usable format. And so when we looked at the ecosystem of personalized medicine, it was just really clear that at every step in the value chain, whether it was diagnosis or interpretation of genetic results or development of therapies or understanding cost and efficacy, there's just no infrastructure. The infrastructure right. is not built to go solve this problem. And so we said, well, okay, how do we start to go and plug in gaps in that infrastructure? So I think that kind right, of wrapped right. around to your question is like, what problem are we trying to solve? We're trying to enable and advance personalized medicine by building some of the fundamental infrastructure that enables right. people to do the math. Well, no, and I think, you know, point well taken, right? I think four years since you've been at concert, like four years can be a long time if you're looking at, like, for instance, sequencing cost declines. You can say, wow, things have really changed from that perspective. But I think something that doesn't get talked about as much as it should, which is why I'm happy, you know, we're talking about it, is there's a lot of peripheral infrastructure for actually translating that into clinical practice. And it's not as easy as price elasticity of demand, which, of course, is an integral backbone to the problem. But when you start thinking about, you know, like you said, clinical evidence development and making that case, especially in the era of personalized medicine, where, you know, it can be difficult to run the types of trials that have historically been, you know, the gold standard, and, and you've got to kind of modernize it or think about it that way. So maybe what was your perspective coming into working at Concert four years ago? What were the biggest pain points? And maybe some of the things that actually shocked you about the state of affairs, if I can say that much. And then, you know, whether it's you guys that have been championing it or maybe the industry just changing, 
what has really changed a lot in those four years and what things are still just keeping you up at night? <laughs> well, since I came into healthcare, really as an outsider four years ago, I mean, I think my understanding was at the time much more like most folks. Think about healthcare, you think about your doctor, you think about procedures, you think about hospitals, think about mm -hmm. getting sick and getting well again. And I think those are all important things. But I think the things that I started to get into, we started to get into, and we tried to understand what was happening in genetics was the healthcare system and healthcare economics and the mm -hmm. business of healthcare and the inner relationship between all of those different aspects and trying to piece together in a logical framework what was happening start to finish as it relates to sort of the life cycle of genetics in the healthcare ecosystem. So from diagnosis, from genetic test to interpretation, to therapy, to payment, <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and then ultimately to learning, which is sort of where we want to be in these highly dynamic, complex areas. My realization was just how different the business of healthcare is from what generally people think about healthcare. And then the number, the sheer volume of intermediaries, the number of players, the fact that it's a healthcare, the business of healthcare is massive, but also multiple industries. What a provider is interested in, what a physician is interested in, whether that physician works for the hospital or health system, just every big area gets broken down. Payers, your large national payers, payer perspective from how they handle their fully insured business to their administrative services only business, private payers versus government payers, laboratories, broad-based general laboratories, innovate. I mean, you just go on, you just, and then the number of systems and number of that intermediaries that you have to deal with if you wanna go in and start to solve some of the problems in healthcare. You wanna to start to measure outcomes. You wanna to start to understand efficacy. You want to start to do that in the way we do it in most other areas where you look at the actual data from the world and measure how it works. And that's a long way off, at least as it relates to personalized medicine. But as we kind of talked about earlier, it's an interesting and uh, important challenge. Thanks for having me here. Excited to be continuing to do this despite the pandemic around us. I'm founder and CEO of Boom Supersonic, which is aiming to create a renaissance of high-speed travel to pick up kind of where Concorde left off a couple decades ago and build high-speed aircraft that are available to more people in more places, ultimately allowing us to do things like New York to London in three and a half hours instead of seven or across the Pacific in five and a half hours instead of the 10 or 11 it takes today enabling you to go more places more of the time and uh, helping create a, a more connected world. And you know, I think at, at this time when the world is perishing from a lack of connection, when we've had to distance ourselves, when everything has gone virtual, it's a poignant moment to be working on technologies that you know, 10 years down the road, or maybe even a bit sooner, will allow us to be far more connected than we have been in recent memory. I think that's absolutely right. And I think latent demand is something that people often forget. It's not just taking the existing market and saying you can get there faster. But once you transform transatlantic flight to equivalent of flying to the Midwest, that really opens up a huge amount of opportunity. It really does. I appreciate that you said that because it's a widely underappreciated point. If you think back to the early days of Uber, people asked, well, what percentage of the black car market 
in San Francisco did Uber take? Oh, was it 10%, 30%? Maybe if they did really well, it was 75%. The actual answer was 300% because they took something that was painfully used and made it so much more convenient that demand exploded. And I think we're going to see the same thing with high-speed travel. When we went from propeller aircraft to jets 50, 60 years ago, travel to places like Hawaii actually skyrocketed. It went up like sixfold in 10 years because when you make something more accessible, people go more often. I think we're going to see the same thing with supersonics. It's latent demand, just like you said. Yep. And that's the future promise. But I guess to start things off, let's look back. You know, you mentioned the Concorde, right? That had its first commercial flight in 76, I believe. There was one other supersonic jet from the Russians at the time, but neither of those really panned out. What happened with those and where are we today? Well, I think it pays to look at where innovation comes from and where sustained innovation comes from. And for the first, call it half century of aviation from the Wright brothers forward, it was largely commercially driven. Why did the Wright brothers build their aircraft? Well, one, they thought it'd be awesome and they could figure it out, but they also thought there would be a business there, that there would be a practical use for the airplane, that they could sell them or they could earn money demoing them. And that was the pattern of the other key innovations in air transportation. The first practical airliner, DC-3, was built by Douglas because he thought he could build an aircraft that a lot of people could afford to fly on them. Airlines could operate profitably. That drove innovation. And then in the 1960s, amidst the Cold War, the, the impetus for aviation innovation changed. And it went from, let's build products that people can use and operate profitably, to let's show that Western technology is superior to Soviet technology. And so in the early 1960s, you had supersonic projects spring up both in the U.S., in Europe, and the Soviet Union. And so that the Soviets had the, the TU-144. Concorde was a joint venture between the French and British governments. Remarkable that it ever actually flew, because most joint ventures between the French and British historically have been wars, right? Not airplanes. And then there was an American competitor as well that's, that's often forgotten. It was called the SST, and it was supposed to be faster and bigger than Concorde. But the plug got pulled for that it was, as it was kind of behind budget and over schedule. But coming back to Concorde, it was technically remarkable what they were able to do in the 1960s. But there was no requirement of a business model. So what they had to do was go fast, try not to crash, and try to do it faster and better than the Russians. And so that was all they had to do. And so they built something with 1960s technology that was impressive, but it was a gas guzzler. It required sky-high fares. There's something like $20,000 in today's money. 100 seats to fill on the airplane at $20,000 a pop, you can't find enough passengers to fill it. And it never made a whole lot of economic sense and never got to economies of scale. And so after flying for 30 years, it got shut down with no plan to replace it. And I think that that story is really emblematic of the difference between privately driven, economically driven innovation versus national prestige driven innovation. There's another story that goes just like this one called Apollo where literally around the same time period, we put men on the moon. And 50 years later, if you go to, you know, if you want to see a moon rocket or a supersonic airliner, you have to go to a museum rather than looking up in the skies. It really goes back to the importance of the, honestly, of the capitalist approach and of going about things in ways that have sustainable economic models and sustainable environmental models. And so you know, the political fallout of Concorde was we actually had a ban on supersonic flight over land in the U.S. And that, that only came about after the U.S. competitor Concorde was canceled. It was like, oh, it was great when we were going to win this race, but after that, we can't have any of the sonic stuff because only the Europeans and the Russians have it. And then that created kind of a blockade to 
business models afterwards. It's what normally happens in innovation, as I'm sure you know, all of your listeners appreciate, is things start for relatively small markets at relatively high price points. Think early computers, think electric cars, think you know, virtually every innovation. And then as we figure it out, we get economies of scale and we figure out how to make it less expensive and it gets available to more and more people. And what would have happened with supersonic travel was it would have started out as a private jet for people whose time was worth the most. Smaller aircraft for fuel burn is less of a consideration. We figured out how to make the sonic boom quiet enough that it wouldn't be a problem. And then that would have grown into a small commercial aircraft, and then a large commercial aircraft, and then faster ones. And we'd all be going, you know, Mach 3 or 4 by now. But instead what happened was, thanks to the political fallout from Concord, we banned supersonic flight over land, which means the natural starting point for that market with a supersonic private jet didn't exist. And you couldn't justify the R&D for it. And so we had decades of stasis until we've reached a crossroads really very recently where there is now the intersection of what you can do technologically and what you can do, what the current market will support. And so that's, that's where you get to the boom story, where we're saying, let's not worry about the supersonic flight over land. Let's focus on routes that are over water. Let's kind of skip over that first innovation node of a private jet and go straight to a small commercial airliner. And today there's the technology to do that, as well as the market demand to make it, make it reasonable. And I'd love that analogy to the rocket industry. I mean, really, even more recently, you know, SpaceX with the Falcon 9, the price point that they came into was not revolutionary. It was actually what the United Launch Alliance was charging before they bloated costs over two decades because they're a monopoly. Isn't that crazy? It is insane. So I think that's a, a perfect analogy there. And then if we can, you know, you mentioned this was all 60s tech that made supersonic possible. We've clearly had half a century of advancement since then. What are some of the technologies being used now? versus then? Or is it still kind of leveraging that as the foundation? Well, the ironic thing is, since Concord flew, we've changed basically everything about airplane technology except the speed. So we've gone from aluminum to carbon fiber composites. We've gone from designing and drafting paper with slide rules to computer-aided design. We've gone from testing in wind tunnels to testing in computer simulation. We've gone from afterburning turbojets that are loud and gas-guzzling and incredibly environmentally unfriendly the turbofan engines that are much quieter, much more fuel efficient, and way more environmentally friendly. And coming back to this crossroads point I was making earlier, if you put all those technologies together, things that have been proven and are actually flying on other aircraft today, you can recombine them into a new design that's going to give you a revolution in speed. It doesn't actually require any sci anything scientifically or fundamentally technologically different. It just requires putting together things we've already proven and building a new business model, a new design aircraft. ARK Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by ARK. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by ARK or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by ARK to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of ARK Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. ARC believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from ARC. Historical results are not indications of future results.